Future Sense is a podcast edited from the radio show of the same name, broadcast on Bay FM in Byron Bay, Australia at bayfm.org. Hosted by Nick Jeans and well-known international futurist Steve McDonald, Future Sense provides a fresh, deep analysis of global trends and emergent technologies. How can we identify the layers of growth, personally, socially, and globally? What are the signs missed, the truths being denied? Science, history, politics, psychology, ancient civilizations, alien contact, the new psychedelic revolution, cryptocurrency, and other disruptive and distributed technologies, and much more. This is Future Sense. Welcome to you all, and welcome to my co-host, Steve McDonald. Good morning, Steve. How are you doing? Good morning, Nick. I'm really well, thanks. It's lovely to see you again. Lovely to always see your face over the other side of the of the mission control here. Yeah, and same, same. And the pulse of the universe behind us here just a little bit. I felt that there in, the, in this track. What are we talking about today? Today What's we're going to dive into late-stage capitalism, and I'm, I'm using that title because it's become common in, in public discourse at the moment. Yeah. Uh, more correctly, it's really late stage layer five in Claire Graves' model of the evolution of human consciousness. And it's what most people know as our dominant global paradigm, which mm. has shaped our social structures, etc. So mm. we'll take a deep dive into that. We'll talk about its characteristics, what drives it, how people think when they're operating from that particular system. And, uh, and then have a look at how it's playing out across society at the moment because there's some really interesting stuff happening, as you know. Yes, indeed. And we, uh, I think we mentioned the term last week, surveillance capitalism, which is an aspect of this and which is a term that has uh, come into sort of becoming a bit of a meme at the moment around the world, appearing in a number of articles around this. And I guess other examples would be the, uh, the Banking Royal Commission and the responses to that, a very sort of tardy response, particularly by the, the current government. And um, and also the, the political donations, 56 million bucks, which uh, can't be exactly accounted for where it came from, from both the Liberal and the Labor Party. So these, uh, I guess these are examples of uh, late-stage capitalism in, in operation. They are. It's a really interesting time at the moment as we're in this transition phase between what has been the dominant global paradigm for the last 300 years or so to what's next. And as any paradigm uh, runs its course towards the end of its time, its way of being and its way of solving problems actually starts to become deconstructive. Mm. Evolution has this beautiful process where once something has sort of run its course, it will actually deconstruct itself to make room for whatever's next. Mm. And that's what's going on right at the moment. I guess it's, that's that's a, a part of the adaption, isn't it? The, that sometimes uh, it's like pruning, it's like shedding the old skin. It's an, it, an adaptive process. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So as you've just suggested, you know, you see it in nature. I mean, you know, at a certain time of the year, trees will shed their leaves to make room for new growth. Yeah, it's exactly that same kind of process. Fantastic. You're tuned to Future Sense with Nick Jeans and Steve McDonald. Engage, emerge, activate, and spiral up. You're tuned to Future Sense here with Steve McDonald and Nick Jeans, and we're talking largely today about late late stage capitalism. That's where we are at now, and uh, the transformations that are going on there, and the indicators of uh, of uh, change. Yeah, so uh, this is the fifth stage or layer in Claire Graves' model, uh, which was uh, resulting from a developmental psychology study that he did decades ago. Mm. And I, what I might just do quickly, Nick, is to run through the stages or layers just for listeners who might not be familiar with yeah. the model, just so they understand where we're at. So we're talking about the sequence of evolution of human consciousness here as it's reflected in our 
mindsets, our worldviews, our values and behaviours. And, of course, we we started as hunter-gatherers, which was a very automatic way of living. And uh, because that was such a long time ago, uh, we sort of transitioned out of that about about at least, I guess, uh, about 50,000 years ago. And um, there's not a lot of accurate records, you know, as to what it's like. But we know from looking at people who are living in very, very basic automatic ways these days, like, uh, for example, people who might be mentally ill and and homeless, those Mm. sorts of things. Yes. Uh, what we do know is that basically they're just living off their instincts and urges and uh, yeah. urges and fulfilling their primary needs, and yeah. there's no elaborate culture or art uh, necessarily associated with that when they're at that basic sort of hunter-gatherer automatic way of living. There's also no judgment about that. That is just where they're at. That's how they're living. Absolutely, they and, and yeah. all of these layers or stages are a direct result of the complexity of life conditions. So it's about the the elastic nature of our our um, brain, our mind, our consciousness, mm. and our capacity to adapt to whatever level of, of coping that we need in order to, to live life appropriately. Yes. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a very natural process and, and not something that has any particular moral uh, character. Yet each layer or stage, of course, comes with its own different perspectives about that. So we're starting at one, which is uh, the, the basically hunter-gather automatic way of living. Uh, and then we move then, transition then into... Uh, the very traditional tribal way of living Mm. and uh, we're talking here about the kind of um, existence that you might find you know deep in the jungles of Papua New Guinea or in places in Africa those sorts of things where people are are living in a subsistence kind of a way they have their uh, sacred land their boundary that they live within and there are customs and those sorts of things which shape the way that they live how they live and we also see that play out in uh, in modern life in cities at a family level so that that same kind of thinking, worldview, values comes with family unit living. And then the third stage or layer is an egocentric, power-oriented way of being human, which is uh, a transition out of the the uh, traditional tribal. Uh, think historically, um, societies like those, the, the one led by uh, Genghis Khan, for example, which went raiding and um, pillaging, uh, pillaging like. and, and those sorts of things. Uh, and the wild teenage years in terms of our own personal lives where we bust out of the family structure and we start to explore our power in the world. And then from there, we transition to the fourth stage or layer, which is where the rational mind really kicks in. So the frontal lobe development is completing and we're getting the capacity to moderate our urges and instincts and those basic drivers that come with at the, the previous stages or layers. Uh, and then usually at this fourth layer, we look for a set of rules to live life by. So uh, we'll look to a higher authority and that higher authority can show up in many, many different ways. You know, it could be uh, in a structured way in an organisation like, for example, the military or the police force or just a, a, a strict kind of working environment. It could be a religion. It could be the Even law. educational institution. Also. Those sorts yes. of things, yeah. yeah. But there's always a higher authority that gives us a, a set of rules to live by. You know, classically, in a re- religious sense, we're talking about like the Ten Commandments. You know, it's like, okay, mm. this is what I should do to live a good life. Yeah. Uh, and that the thinking at that uh, layer tends to be quite rigid and linear because it's latched onto one set of rules and that's the only right way. Uh, so it's um, it's quite kind of bound to that singular path yeah. and uh, rejects anything that doesn't fit with the rules as, as uh, we know them. And then um, 
the fifth layer, which is our topic of discussion today, is multiplistic. It's the modern scientific industrial mindset. And we break out from that linear way of living in the fourth layer to a multiplistic way of living where all of a sudden we can see many, many options and we can select any of those options, whichever one seems to be the best. And we select the best option or the best path forward by a process of experimentation, which of course is the foundation of our science, yeah. our mainstream science. It's interesting and, too. If I, are you yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to. I just noticed there the interesting thing about um, from um, stage three, where we come out of the tribal into that uh, adventurous. Let's what's over the other side of the hill? Can we yeah. conquer them? Can we defeat them? What have they got over there? Yeah. It sort of seems like at that, at that stage the boundaries sort of fall away, and then in stage four, as you've just articulated, the boundaries sort of come into play play again. A certain sense of boundaries and structures, and then stage five, those boundaries sort of fall apart to a degree, and everything's you know possible again. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. What, what you're describing there are characteristics of this alternation that happens as we go up through the layers between yeah. an individualistic way of living and a communal way of living. So we've got individualistic at layer one, we've got communal at layer two tribal, we've got individualistic again at the egocentric three, communal again at four, and then individualistic again at five. Mm. And when we're in the communal ways of living, they are by nature conformist because we have to conform with a certain mm. way of living Otherwise in order to live in community. Yeah, right? that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise it doesn't work. Yeah. And then you're quite right, when we transition out of a communal way into an individualistic way, then that conformity falls away and it's much more loose. And, uh, and it's during those individually oriented paradigms that we sort of surge forward. So when we're living in communal conformist ways, we, we are by nature bound to live you know, within certain uh, parameters rule sets and, and parameters, yeah. yeah. And, and it's when we transition into the individual layers or ways of living that we bust out, we make progress, we fly to the moon and do those sorts of things, yeah. At the same time, though, of course, that gives us a certain license to do what the hell we want to do if it works for us or for those that we're associated with. That's right. There's a certain looseness, a certain yeah. lack of conformity, yeah. uh, a lack of rules, in other words, um, that gives it a particular flavor. And yeah. we're certainly getting a big taste of that right now at the That's end right. of this fifth yeah. stage of layer. So let me just continue on for yes. the benefit of those who don't know the model. So beyond the fifth layer, which is currently the dominant global paradigm, the sixth, which is the emerging paradigm that we're seeing early signs of at the moment, is again a communal way of living. It comes with a certain conformity. It's very humanistic. So when we move from one stage or layer to the next, typically one of the characteristics is we strongly reject the way of living that came before. So what we're seeing is a very strong rejection of this uh, capitalist scientific, industrial, corporate, military, industrial, complex kind of way of living. Uh, and that's typical. And the same thing happened when, when the fifth layer emerged. We saw a rejection of the rigid, bureaucratic, absolutistic way of living. So the sixth is bringing a very humanistic approach to life. Uh, the fifth was very materialistic. And so we're moving away from that back into a more spiritual way of thinking. Uh, and uh, there's a strong focus on the human experience, the internal human experience, and also on uh, personal healing. And it's a very network-centric way of structuring society and, and living. So obviously we have uh, a huge global structure now in the internet, which has grown out of the technology from Layer 5, uh, and, uh, and that's developing into technologies like blockchain and we're still in the early stages 
of the emergence of this layer six structure. Um, it's uh, you know it's something that has been highly criticised in its early stages. If we go back to early waves of this six layer like in the 1960s and 70s with the, yes. the flower power movement, social justice mm. movements, anti-war movements and those sorts of things. They've, they copped a lot of criticism. But what we were seeing was very early stages of this new way of thinking that lacked the social scaffolding to, to that it needs to support itself. Yes. And now... Uh, with time, the, the scaffolding has emerged in the form of the internet and other social structures that are mm. supporting this thinking, which actually gives it a new level of sophistication. And I think you know the kind of um, blockchain-based technology that we're seeing in cryptocurrency and, and those uh, arenas is an example of the of, of the, the more developed, mature version of this new way of being human yes. that has the structure it needs to do what it does in the way it does it. And so that sixth layer brings us to the end of what Claire Graves called the, the first tier of human consciousness. And the transition from the sixth to the seventh marks the beginning of a, a new era. Um, in fact, it's more than a new era. It's a, it's a whole new way of being human. Um, and it's, it's different than the transitions between one, two, three, four, five, and six because it takes us uh, beyond rational thinking into what's known as a transrational way yeah. of being where we actually are moving beyond using the rational mind uh, in order to cope with the problems that life throws at us and layer seven stage seven uh, the and people will you, you'll hear me saying layer and stage here so uh, stage is the old terminology that was used when this research was done and uh, I'm slightly transitioning myself uh, and, and listeners into using and getting accustomed to this idea of calling it a layer because these layers are actually nested inside each yeah. other. They're not discrete yeah. things that we, where we leave one behind and we go to a new one. We actually uh, grow each layer over the top of the previous one. So by the time we get to six, we've got six on top of five, on top of four, three, two, one. Mm. Uh, and it's kind of like their layers of skin on an onion. And we don't lose those previous capacities. They're always there inside of us. And so our life conditions dictate which one we use as our current operating system. And we can switch instantly between one and another. And an extreme example of that would be, you know, we're, we're having a fairly sophisticated philosophical conversation here at a, at a fairly uh, complex layer of consciousness but if there was some kind of emergency in the building like the building caught fire or uh, there was an explosion or something then very quickly we'd instantly switch back to survival mode in that automatic yes. first layer <laughs> instantly because it's there inside of us you know it's it was developed in our past and uh, it's there for us to apply to our thinking and behavior uh, when it's needed and that's that's the amazing thing about and that's a, it's quite a, a big change this uh, perception from a, a linear uh, perception of how things evolve and change to this sort of nested, um, more multi-dimensional aspect. And I'm, I'm thinking of um, reading recently a thing you sent me from Ken Wilber, who, of course, is one of the uh, one of the many intellectuals and theorists who base much of his work uh, on Graves' work initially called Spiral Dynamics in that uh, that stream, uh, in talking about the difference between the chain of being, what was known as the chain of being, yeah. to the nest of being. I really like this idea, this because we, we're really still very addicted to uh, to the linear, aren't we? To the causa causative somehow. To this causes that, this causes that, and so on, rather than actually seeing it all in, in embedded 
in each other in a way in different layers, which is quite a beautiful, like a flower unfolding somehow. It is, that's right. And of course, these ways of making sense of things relate back to these layers and stages. And as I was saying before, at the fourth layer, our thinking is linear. And therefore, we come up with linear models. And and one of the really interesting things about this present time is with the emergence of the sixth layer, which is network-centric, we're seeing new network-centric understandings being published in scientific papers, which is, I think, it's just remarkable yeah. to see that evidence, you know, coming coming out yeah, of this fantastic. emergence. Very, very interesting indeed. So just to finish running through yeah. these layers, uh, at the seventh, we move into a transrational, multidimensional way of being human, which opens up our sensory perception of dimensions that weren't accessible, accessible to us before. And it's true to say that as we transition from every layer to the next we have an expansion of our sensory perception in some way and um, Mm. that can show Mm. up in our for example our capacity to relate to uh, second person third person fourth person fifth person and those sorts of things those those concepts but also i I think uh, you know although the the evidence for this is sketchy but I, i expect that there is an expansion in our everyday senses to some extent also yeah. And, we, you know, we certainly find ourselves listening to different types of music, more complex music, for example, appreciating complexity uh, through our various senses. And so at seven, uh, we have what's often called the integral or integrative way of being human, where we get a, an amazing integration of left and right brain. And the uh, tendency to defer to left brain or right brain thinking is part of what's behind this individual versus communal ways of living uh, with our our left brain being the 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 part of our brain which uh, looks at detailed information for example and the right brain rational information yeah right brain mean more about sort of uh, large picture pattern recognition and and uh, the 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 merging or connection between things Uh, and so at seven we get a, a level of integration that we haven't seen before where all of a sudden instead of really being biased towards one side of the brain or the other, we're now operating in an integrated way. Mm. And uh, it's it's not like the be-all and end-all, uh, you know, it's just first step into this new way of being human, but it's, it gives us amazing capacity. And Claire Graves wrote that there's more coping capacity in terms of our capacity yeah. to solve problems that are presented to us in this seventh layer integrative way of being human than there is in all of the previous six layers combined. Combined, So if you add up all of the capacities that come with the first six layers, then you get all of that plus more in this single transition between six and seven, which is why it's such an extraordinary move. And some people now are suggesting that what we're what we're seeing here is actually the emergence of a new species of human being. And I, I, I tend to lean in that direction as well. I think there's a lot more science to be done before we, we can confirm that. But it's certainly looking like it's such a radically different way of being human that it may well be a new species of human. Yeah. And then uh, just to finish the, the sequence now, uh, the, the last layer or stage that Claire Graves documented was the eighth, which was, again, a swing back to a communal way of being human extremely complex and sophisticated he only had six people out of a thousand and sixty five people in his longitudinal study who showed up in this space so he really didn't get very much data but he he made some general conclusions he said that it's a very spiritual way of being in other words it's very aware of uh, and constantly 
referring to the non-material aspects of life, uh, not necessarily connected to any particular religion or anything like that, but mm. just being aware of this uh, multi-dimensional access to non-physical realms mm. and extremely intuitive, uh, which reflects the transrational way of being. And it will most likely give rise to some kind of a... Um, global sphere of uh, accessible and connected consciousness between humans in, in the same way that we see um, organization, self-organization in, for example, insect communities where there's apparently no rational process going on or there's no one in charge. And I, I'm not implying that termites are answer it or this like, like eighth layer of consciousness but it's it's a similar kind yeah, of concept like the murmuration of starlings uh, as birds fly that way or the that, way the fish move yeah in some yeah ways. yeah and uh you know it's it's also uh, implying some kind of telepathic communication i would suggest mm. also mm. Uh, but again we really don't know much about it also a lot of this is just speculation mm. but uh, anyway there we have it the the sequence of one through eight as recorded in claire graves's model uh, and today we're talking about layer five. Yes, indeed. And uh, f as you're speaking, I'm thinking because you know this is a model. Uh, it's I find it an incredibly uh, useful model, more than useful. I find it very resonant with with my way of thinking for quite a long time overall. But you know, for for many people, it's probably still just a theory, an idea, a model, and so forth. Uh, and yet, you know, we, we're seeking here to bring. Um, practical applications of how it's revealed, how it's shown, and where it may be leading us. Because it would seem that the solutions that we require for the very significant global problems we now have are not, as Einstein said, I've said this many times, are not able to be solved with the same level of thinking that created them, full stop. And yet we still try, even as we move into into layer six in uh, Graves' model, much more communal, much more egalitarian, much more um, uh, sustainable and sharing and compassionate and connected. Nevertheless, we're still struggling for uh, um, uh, an expression that... that uh, that actually solves the problems. It's hard to articulate really what I mean here, but I think you get the idea. And I think it's really great because we do repeat in different ways um, Graves' work in these in these layers, as you said. And for you guys out there, you listen often, you've heard it many times. Each time you listen to it, you're hearing something slightly different there. You're getting a different angle, and I think that's really important too. That's what I heard as you were as you were giving that yeah, exposition. I, then, yeah, I think it's it's good to do that, and I do try and just uh, tweak my explanations every time I give one, just to add to the yes. you know to the sort of uh, total amount of information that we're putting out there about the characteristics of these different ways of being human. And for those people who might have uh, read the book Spiral Dynamics or studied mm. Spiral Dynamics, Layer Five is of course uh, labelled orange or yeah. in the Spiral Dynamics version of Claire Graves' work, they um, gave colours to the different layers, uh, with uh, one being beige, uh, two tribal being purple, uh, three egocentric being red, four absolutistic being blue, uh, and then five, uh, the modern scientific industrial multiplistic being orange, and then uh, six, of course, humanistic network centric is green, and then into second tier uh, in the spiral dynamics model, seven the integrative uh, layer of consciousness was called yellow and then eight was called turquoise and in ken wilber's work ken wilber's is kind of uh, used a slightly different model again where he's using the visible spectrum yeah. and so his his colors are, are slightly different again mm. 
For all of you out there, strangers in a strange land, you're grokking future sense here on Bay FM. You are tuned to Future Sense here with Nick and Steve. And just while we're on the subject of where you can hear us, if you're not listening to us now or you want to listen to us later or send it, send what you're hearing to someone else, you can uh, listen to Future Sense wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Twitter, Stitcher and Overcast or anywhere else out there. And um, also the articles that we refer to in the show are tweeted to our at Future Sense show Twitter feed. That's right, and they're tweeted very carefully. They're tweeted very carefully by, tweeted our, very well. by Professor Ross Hill down there in Melbourne, our associate. And hello, Ross. Now he's listening, keeping an eye on us. <laughs> so we're talking today about Layer 5 in Claire Graves' model, which is better known as the modern scientific industrial paradigm, the, the dominant global paradigm. And, uh, of course, the scientific industrial revolutions were both very formative turning points in the shift of uh, the, uh, the dominant paradigm. And in fact, if we go back beyond the modern era, let's, let's say, let's go back even further, say a thousand years ago, then the most prominent paradigm on the planet was layer four, which was the absolutistic way of living where thinking was quite rigid. It was very much uh, about living according to a very strict rule set, which often uh, was dominated by religious belief. And, and, of course, if you look at the history from that time, you'll see that uh, religion had an enormous impact on the world. And it's only really about um, you know, five, four or 500 years ago that we started to see the tide turn. And, in fact, before then, there was really no concept at all of a dominant global paradigm. No. So it was only roughly 500 years ago in that mm. kind of era that we had the first journeys around the world that kind of stitched them yes. back together and I started yeah. to understand that the world's round and not flat. Magellan um, and the like. Yeah, of, of mm. course. And I, I must just put a, a little uh, qualification in here too is that on this show we often talk about historical examples based on mainstream history just for, for ease of understanding for the listeners. But yes. uh, we do recognise that uh, there's a lot of history that really will be rewritten, I think, in, mm. the, in the coming mm. decades as we discover more information about ancient technologies and ancient civilizations, that's been lost to us. Yes. Uh, and uh, and I think it's quite likely that there was an understanding that the world wasn't flat well before 500 years ago by in some civilizations. <laughs> but uh, we, we, we try and keep it simple. Mm. So... Um, the, the, uh, the topic we'll come back to in another show. I, I'm sure, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, layer five where uh, it's done some amazing things for us, you know, through the, the scientific industrial revolutions. I mean, it's it, at an extreme, it's taken us to the moon and back. Uh, it's, it's also taken us deep inside our own biology and the geology of the earth with microscopic mm. viewpoints and those sorts of things. The depth of the, the oceans and the, the technology. somewhat out into space now as we extend our reach out there as well. Exactly. But it's been very physically oriented mm. in its perspective and it has actually downplayed the non-physical. It's been very materialistic in that sense. And uh, like um, really most of the individualistic ways of living, they tend not to be deeply spiritual in a, in a structured sense. And that structured spirituality usually comes from the communal ways of living. So, you know, animism at the tribal stage, uh, classic religions at layer four, uh, and um, diversified and, and the connecting of different structures of religions, the networking together of of religious beliefs, mm. you know, between different faiths and those multi-faith kind of understandings, 
in layer six as it's emerging. I, I've got a really bad... Um, I know, we've got a thing going on in our headphones. Yeah. We're going to have to cope with it. We can't seem to do anything about it right now, and I don't think it's going into air, so that's a good thing. I'm just swapping. Yeah, it's interesting when you talk about the technology rocks. and how we've... Because uh, I, I immediately started to think of it. Whenever I see a, a, a rocket taking off for space, launching a satellite or going to the moon, and the incredible amount of fuel of uh, high-tech fuel, basically uh, fossil fuel fuel, yeah. uh, that's burnt in order to lift us, us out of the gravity. I always think that it's so backward somehow. It's, a, it's sort of an example of how that layer that you're talking about has used uh, what, for us, at that time, was advanced technology, yeah. and yet kind of a gross technology in order to you know, burst our way and force our way into space. I, I know. Yeah. you know, and, and like people in the modern era have looked back at, at uh, you know some of the early ways of propulsion and, and laughed at them as being primitive. But there'll be a time in the future when we'll say to, to uh, yeah. the kids, you know, we used to drive around in these machines that were powered by controlled explosions. And they'll say, oh, my God, you're kidding me. <laughs> oh, bring on those times, please. Bring them on. Exactly. Um, so back to human evolution. Uh, and often it's assumed that human evolution kind of stopped somewhere. You know, I mean, when I was coming through school, there was really no talk of current evolution. It was mm. always a, an historic thing mm. that happened some time before. Uh, and and the same thing, you know, was was evident in religious teaching as well. It was like, you know, all this stuff happened in the past, but it doesn't really happen now. <laughs> um, yet uh, there's and and there's this assumption that humanity and human nature is is one category or one thing at the moment, instead mm. of understanding that it's actually a multi-dimensional thing and it's quite adaptive and forever changing. So. Um, the, the discussion that we're having on this show on an ongoing basis is, is based on this multi-dimensional adaptive understanding of human consciousness that it is ever-changing that it's amazingly adaptive and it has many many facets uh, so if we look at the whole of humanity right now the the level or layers of consciousness are spread right across the spectrum you mm. know and again as i mentioned earlier it's mentioned it's linked to the complexity of life conditions so we are adaptive to the complexity of the problems that are thrown up in everyday life and the more complex those problems are um, the, you know the more multi-layered connective and interactive they are then the more multi-dimensional our consciousness needs to be in order to cope with those problems and solve those problems therefore people who are living in very simple life conditions will simply adapt uh, literally to to live according to fairly basic values and simple sense of behaviours because they don't need anything further. You know, yeah, and that's the key. They don't need anything. I think that's. I think I've used the example before. Once when I was in Sumatra years and years ago in the uh, 1980 or so, it was my first experience of really a third world country, and it was incredible because I had nothing. I was in this village called Bukatingi in northern Sumatra, yep. central northern Sumatra, and uh, the villagers were living with a bowl of rice and a few vegetables a day and turning little humpies. And but the smiles on the faces, the natural ability for them just to be in yeah. their environment in, within their life conditions, quite satisfactory. It was extraordinary. It is extraordinary, mm. and in, for us coming out of a complex world, it can be extremely refreshing. You know, I, yeah. I have the same kinds of memories yes. from trekking through the, the remote jungles of Papua New Guinea, you know, up in mm. the highlands, and coming across very simple villages that are, you know, a couple of days' walk from the nearest road. So there's no no machines. Mm. Uh, life is very simple. They grow their own food. Often very very happy. Yeah, and and, and a great thing too that we have that diversity of, of layers on the planet. And at the same time, the global issues that we face are, are now truly global. 
and so do need sort of global solutions. So everybody, in some way, everybody on the planet will in some way be influenced and affected by and taken up and brought forward with this in some way, ideally, hopefully. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, one simple way to think of human evolution, and this, this is a kind of a, a linear concept, of course, is, mm. is just as a conga line. And for those younger <laughs> listeners who've never heard of a conga line out there, and I know there are some because I bump into them occasionally, the conga is a dance that comes from uh, South America where people line up behind each other and put their hands on the waist of the person in front and they all kind of bop along to a rhythm. Um, so you can imagine that the, the whole of humanity is in a, in a line bopping along like that and there are kind of pathfinders up the front who are living in very complex life conditions where they've have to, have had to sort of forge forward and develop mm. very, very complex uh, levels of consciousness in mm. order to cope. And you've got all the folks in the middle and then you've got people down the back who are still living in very simple life conditions and who are very happy and capable uh, and productive living life according to very simple value sets yeah. and, and behavioural sets. Um and uh, what's really interesting, and I think you just alluded to it, is that as time goes on and we develop better technologies and those technologies become widely available, these technologies which belong to uh, layers that might be you know, many steps in, in front of, mm. you know, of a particular society are actually becoming available to that society yes. and so yeah. you know we have tribal people who have smartphones yeah. lots and those of them sorts Indeed. of things which mm. is just adding to the complexity mm. of the whole picture and uh, i think you know where we still our understanding of this whole arena of human consciousness and human values and behavior is, is still very small mm. we've got much much more to learn and it's going to be interesting in the future to see how these societies that are living according to the the earlier uh, less complex layers of consciousness mm. will change and adapt mm. with access to these interesting and complex technologies. Because it can be um, empowering. It can be uh, that distributed technology being becoming empowering and enabling smaller businesses, people who don't have bank accounts, people who don't have access to the normal structures of a uh, fifth layer of uh, first world um, technology and the like. But these technologies may well instill, and there are examples of this around the world, uh, an ex sort of an accelerated um, evolution of their own empowerment, you could say. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting mm. to, to watch that play out mm. in the years ahead. And uh, you know, what was life according to Layer 5 10, 20, 50 years ago is probably going to look very different to mm. those people who are transitioning and living according to Layer 5 mm. in the future because they might have whole bunch of technologies that we didn't have back in the day yeah. Uh, so yeah there there is a deeply interesting future ahead on a very personal level as i've been saying our own development goes through this same sequence that i'm talking about it doesn't just apply to large-scale humanity we grow through these layers and we will grow up to and adapt to whatever the dominant level of complexity is in our own life conditions and yet we live side by side in our towns and cities uh, with other people who are living life from completely different value sets mm. and uh, and this is one of the most amazing things you know about humanity is we have uh, people living in multiple different worlds and you can you can think of each one of these layers variously as perhaps like a computer operating system 
a different computer operating system for each layer, or you can think about it as a as a bubble, you know, actually living in your very own world with your own values and understandings and explanations and coping capacities right alongside other people that you might be sitting on the same bus seat with who are living in a completely different world. And yeah. we manage to talk to each other. We manage to get on most of the time. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, often these different value sets, different uh, expressions of the various layers of consciousness simply show up as disagreements, misunderstandings and conflicts and those sorts of things. And, it, and it, they really are the, I get one of the driving factors between most of the conflict on the planet is just that people are seeing life very differently and have different standards and values. Indeed, but I guess what is happening though, even given just what you've said there really with, with great articulation is that uh, the, the elements of late stage capitalism that have been revealed as being uh, downright crooked, distorted, manipulative, or in the case of the phrase surveillance capitalism, a concerted effort to mine your personal data and information to uh, to estimate, to project the potential futures that you may be interested in to sell your stuff, put it bluntly. So we're seeing examples now revealed, particularly in the last couple of years, we're seeing the, the, whole, uh, um, the whole discussion around social media generally and the role of social media, how that plays out. We're seeing, for example, uh, the issue of political donations, not just in Australia, but pretty well around the world, certainly in America, how that's constructed. Uh, and we're seeing, uh, well, a lot of other examples. So let's go to some of those practical examples of, of that articulate this late-stage capitalism and the revelations that are coming about that everybody actually is starting to see in one on one level or other. And which is interesting in itself that uh, you know the person living sitting on that bus next to you might be completely different to you is still reading that same or part of that same I mean, even though they might be reading it in the Daily Telegraph and you're we're reading it on some <laughs> you know some much more interesting and uh, evolved uh, internet platform perhaps yeah. uh, nevertheless we're talking about the same we're listening to and, and understanding to some degree the same issues that are at play here we are and just making sense of it in different ways yeah. so in order to make sense of late stage capitalism we need to look at the fundamental drivers of this modern scientific and industrial mindset and they evolve out of the previous absolutistic mm. layer which had a very linear uh, way of doing things and relied on a higher authority for information so the rules of life uh, you know that the, the ways of solving problems came from some higher authority so we always had to reference whatever the instruction book said yeah. in, in order to figure out um, mm. how to go about things and then with the scientific revolution in particular we transitioned from that deference to a higher authority to an understanding that we could actually discover it for ourselves and through a process of curiosity experimentation risk-taking we could actually discover our own truth and, and we didn't have to get it out of a book that you know that was written by some uh, unknown authority and so that provided a tremendous amount of freedom you know all of a sudden we could we could bust out and explore as you were saying earlier on uh, kind of throw the rule book away really yes. yeah, yeah. Uh, that's exactly what's happened <laughs> and we could figure out our own rules and from a moral point of view the, mm. the morals of the fourth layer were very clearly prescribed they were given and yet in layer five we get to construct our own morals and so what they end up being is basically whatever we can get away with right and the fundamental driver of, of this level or layer of consciousness is personal success mm. 
And in a world of um, money, then that often translates as being financially successful. And thus, we have the exemplar of uh, what Steve's talking about in, in um, Donald Trump, for example. Yeah, so we can, in a sense, buy whatever it is we need if, if we have enough money. And so there's this uh, individual drive to succeed, uh, which often shows up in, the, in, in mainstream society as a drive to make as much money as we can. Yeah. And any kind of communal collaboration, cooperation, is simply there as an enabler. So unlike the, the communal ways of living in the communal layers where it's a fundamental part of the structure of life, it's just a necessary evil, really, yeah. in layer five. It's utilitarian. I'm going to work with this person over here even though I don't like them, don't agree with them because it functions to support me in getting what I want. Exactly. Yeah. And you can see the, the kind of divisive individual-oriented thinking in corporations, for example, I mean, let's face it, a corporation has the legal status of an individual according yeah. to the law, right? Since I mean, about 1880-something. That, that, that says it right there. Yeah. But then if you look at the structure of a corporation, they're divided up into silos usually, so so narrow departments that have a speciality. And this is very much an example of the layer five mentality is that we want to go uh, as far as we can in a, within a narrow spectrum. So, you know, we'll, we'll dive deep and each different department will have a deep understanding and, uh, a, you know, a deep collection of information about one particular thing, which might be, for example, marketing or production or something else. And yet often those different silos or departments don't talk to each other very well because they're just really focused on being as, as successful as they can within their own narrow, narrow kind the of The left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing, which also gives an excuse when things are revealed in, in the large businesses and the like that, oh, well, we didn't know about that. We saw that in the Banking Royal Commission a lot. Yeah, that's, that's exactly yeah. right. And then if you look at the governance of a corporation, the people who actually pull the strings, you know, in other words, the shareholders who are demanding results from the, the governing board, uh, they are so far disconnected, not only from what's happening inside the organisation, mm. inside those narrow siloed departments, but they are far, far removed from the end product and its impact on society. Uh, because they're simply focused on their own success, mm. which means financial success from their dividends yeah. as, as shareholders. Mm. Yeah. Yes, well, that's right. I mean, in economic uh, structures, in economic theory, a lot of the uh, the very resources that we use, um, just take trees, for example, forests, um, the oceans themselves are not really factored into the economic uh, model. No, it that's doesn't right. serve It doesn't serve the financial objective to yeah. do so, generally speaking. Yeah, so this kind of disconnected structure mm. is a key uh, influencer of the kind of outcomes that we've seen mm. revealed in the, the Banking Royal Commission here in Australia, mm. which which I can only call atrocities, yeah. where, where in order to make more money for the shareholders, and you've got to remember that, you know, it's not just the shareholders, but the, the CEO and the senior executives, all the people in the, in the chain that lead back to the, to the end of the line are all benefiting in some way because, you know, when the CEO gives good returns for the shareholders, uh, then he gets his bonus and, you know, the, the executives below him get their bonuses and stuff. So there's prid quo pro all along the way. Yeah. Um, and, and yet this disconnection from what's actually happening out there in society as a result, as a result of these actions. And it's only when, you know, there's a, a, an inquiry like the Royal Commission that digs deep and says, well, hang on, what about this? And we spoke to these people here and they said this happened. And, of course, uh, you know, the, the senior executives are aghast mm. and can't understand. You know, they're so far removed from thinking about those things uh, because they're so focused on their own personal
success that uh, you know there's, it's just a massive disconnect. I mean, in the end, the amount of corporate malfeasance that's been revealed across the board on the planet, generally speaking, is uh, is best exemplified or best one of the cutting things that uh, that I see is that very, very few executives are ever charged with any criminal activity, even though there's clearly a lot of criminal activity out there. Uh, you know, the, the global financial crisis of the GFC of 2008-9, uh, very few of those bankers uh, were actually ended up with any sort of uh, um, um, criminal or other kind of uh, charges, and it's incredible, very few in jail. Um, other than in Iceland, apparently, where they they jailed a bunch of the bankers back then. That's so right. They're, they're famous for doing. They're that. famous for banking that, their own Yeah, and joining their own bankers. What you're talking about is a result mm. of what's often called corporate capture. Mm. And so, in this strive for personal success, and and uh, in the process, gathering up as many financial resources as possible, uh, then continued success comes from using money to be able to control all of the things around you. And, and so we've seen this creeping corporate capture over the years. And it, it's important as we, as we talk about these uh, deconstructive detrimental aspects of this paradigm to remember that if we go back in history to the transition from the previous era, the absolutistic layer four era, all of these things were amazing problem solvers. And, and this capacity to bust out of the rigid rule sets and do new things and experiment mm. and splash money around and create amazing things, um, you know, w- were revolutionary, quite literally. And they solved many, many of the problems that were created by that rigid bureaucratic kind of thinking. Yes. And so there's there's kind of like this bell curve where at the early stage of a paradigm, you know, we have this amazing upward trajectory where we're solving our old problems and making life better. And then at some stage it'll peak. And then eventually in the later years of a paradigm, we'll get this deconstructive trend where it actually becomes detrimental to society. <laughs> And in the process, creates the evolutionary tension required to transition us to whatever's next. Yeah. And so, as bad as these things are that we're discussing here in late stage capitalism, they are actually the fuel so, for yeah, evolutionary fuel. progression. And the signpost that there is actually a progression happening. That's I right. wonder what your opinion is of, because uh, having resisted uh, right to the very end uh, the establishment of the Banking Royal Commission, for example, the coalition still continues, especially with Morrison, with our Prime Minister, to uh, warn against sort of excessive response to the findings of the Royal Commission. I wonder what that's actually about. Given that it's happened now, and even though it was a truncated version of a royal commission, it nevertheless revealed an incredible amount of malfeasance across the board. Yeah. But now the response that it's, the report has been released is still a kind of you know dampen it down, don't don't respond to it. And I wonder what you feel that's about in respect to what we're talking about. I, I think it's another example of corporate capture, mm. where um, the way that we structured our our political system, our democratic system is that the, the parties need funding in order to do what they do. Uh, they have to appeal to the, the public to, uh, you know, to donate to them. And, uh, of course, who are the organisations within society that have the most money, the most resources to throw around, and they are the large corporations. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, they have a, a vested interest in political policy, um, to, which affects their capacity to make more money, to be more successful. And so what they want to do is they want to use the resources that they have, the financial resources, in order to influence government to make sure that the policies are as friendly as possible so that they can keep on being successful and make more money. And, it, you know, it's just a kind of cycle. And so um, with the uh, the recent 
disclosure that we had here in Australia of uh, political donations. $56 million of income to the Liberal and Labor parties that could not be traced. $56 million. That was in 2017 to 18. That's right. From the Grattan Institute. And one of the amazing things about this modern scientific scientific industrial mindset, Layer 5, is that it will always find a way, okay? It will always find a way around whatever it is. And it, it remember, it grew out of finding ways around the rigid rule sets of Layer 4. You know, that that's its specialty. And so what it's done over time is it's gradually influenced the design of our political systems such that they can get away with whatever they want to get away with. Mm. And that is really the, the moral benchmark for Layer 5 is if we can get away with it without compromising our own future success, then it's morally acceptable. It's as simple as that. And uh, you, you add that to the materialistic mindset, which lacks a kind of spiritual depth, and you get the kind of things that we've seen governments doing in recent years where the, the outcomes of their actions uh, are often uh, terrible, terrible human suffering, and yet all they're looking at is their own personal success and, and downplaying in, a, in what comes across as a very cold and unfeeling way the the uh, collateral damage and there's a great expression that's come out, yeah. out of the, the modern scientific industrial era. Right, right? the Good collateral point. damage. Right. <laughs> Good point. It's a it's a way that we can just package all that stuff and put it on, a label on it, put it in a box and yes. stick it over there. Unfortunate, uh, yes, effects and influences on these people or this situation over here. Sorry about that, uh, but we've got to get on with business over here. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah. Very cynical. Yeah. It's interesting because, of course, Victoria has recently passed laws forcing all donations over $1,000 to political parties to be declared and capping them at $4,000 over four, over four years. And the Greens want a similar cap passed in the federal parliament. They also particularly want the Greens an outright ban on donations from mining, gambling, alcohol, property and banking sectors. Interesting to delineate, you know, the, how we see this sort of evil group. And, you know, yeah. I'm going to agree with that. I find those to be an evil group of, of companies, if you can put the word evil there. Yeah. But, you know, again, uh, can we impose those values here and not over there? That's a tricky uh, equation too, isn't it? These kinds of efforts are yeah. last-ditch attempts to kind of plug the holes on a sinking ship, right? Yeah. And they'll, they'll work, they'll help to some extent, but what you've got is a ship that's got many, many holes in it and it's like it's people are saying, okay, let's get a bigger patch, you know. <laughs> and uh, sooner or later we're going to reach the point where we realise that this ship can't can't be patched anymore it's going to sink anyway and that is true because we're transitioning in an evolutionary sense out of this era into a new era that's going to bring new ways of being human new social structures new ways of doing business uh, and uh, and we should expect at this late stage to see these last ditch attempts to try and repair an old broken system that's actually beyond repair and they may work in the short term, but they're certainly not uh, long-term solutions. Yeah. Thanks for your texts, and I should have mentioned already 0437341119. You can text in. A few texts have come in. Um, one person just said, Scott Morrison, apparently, there's a new book, talks about his Pentecostal faith, and he believes he is guided by God, and hence many actions are irrational, is what uh, you're saying here. Thanks for that. And yes, we were going to mention that particular, there's actually an article, I was just trying to find it again there, and I, we were going to talk about it a bit last week, or just touch into it. But uh, you may be interested in that particular aspect of, uh, of Scott Morrison, because it's, um, you know, perhaps it's a bit exaggerated, perhaps not. It's a curious thing, but thanks for that. Yeah, it's interesting, because we are seeing this regressive mm. search at the moment. 
as part of the transition dynamic. So when we transition between these layers, what happens is typically uh, as soon as there's a feeling that something's not working right is we begin this regressive search looking back to old value sets, which in this case means going back to layer four, layer three values. And let's try those on to see if they work because they used to work, right? We remember that they worked a, a while ago and this layer five stuff isn't working as well anymore. So typically we see uh, this regressive search leading to the emergence of the expression of old values and we hear it all the time from politicians, let's get back to blah, 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 right? Let's Make Australia safe again, for example. Exactly. That's, that's apparently uh, Morrison's speech before the opening of Parliament this year today, I guess, at the... Uh, press club or perhaps it's in, in parliament i'm not sure but apparently it's about safety it's all about safety yeah, keeping well, australia safe again yeah that, I, I think it's a wonderful fear-based yeah. attempt to convince people not to elect the other party because they they won't keep you safe we will no that's right um, they'll just, let the boats come in and all just that like stuff kept your money safe and all that other stuff <laughs> yeah right thank you very much you're resonating right now on future sense with steve mcdonald and nick jeans you're tuned to Future Sense here till 11 o'clock. 11 o'clock pregnancy, birth and beyond is in the house. And that last track was um, called By the Sea, title track from uh, The Human Experience and Gone Gone Beyond. We play tracks of that particular collective quite a lot here. And up front there, also a beautiful track from Ayla Nere. We also play quite often uh, tracks from her and a track called Hum. Um, we've been talking about Layer 5 and we're particularly talking now about corporate capture and uh, as Steve has said, corporate capture means in a sense that things can't be changed. They have to actually collapse. And we're in that process of collapse of some of the institutions. You could argue certainly the revolution of, of uh, the revelations around some of the malfeasance and malpractice of corporations such as the banking sector in Australia. And I think it's that, that awareness that, that is a growing awareness amongst all people uh, on the planet now of, of the, uh, the uh, inability of these of these uh, fifth layer organisations, businesses, governments to actually serve the people and to actually uh, to solve the problems and are away from their own selfish interests is, is quite extraordinary. And uh, one, of the, one of the terms that's come into our awareness in the last couple of weeks is the term surveillance capitalism. It comes, I understand, from a woman, Shoshana Zuboff's book of the same name, The Age of Surveillance Capital, Capitalism, uh, which is uh, drawing comparisons to uh, seminal socio-economic investigations like Rachel Carson's Silent Spring in the 60s, a seminal book there, and Karl Marx's Capital, although uh, it's uh, a lot more than this according to uh, Sam Biddle who writes about the um, th- this book and the age of surveillance capitalism and how we are sold and captured by that corporate capture of social media and how those, that information is sold on, as we're now becoming aware of in the last year, 2018 in particular, was a, a year where a lot of those, uh, those uh, awarenesses around Facebook, for example, and other social media platforms came to most of us here. But has the horse bolted? Can we, um, can we change what has already happened in terms of the amount of information that we have put out onto the net and how that is being used to sell us? Or actually not, as she said, we're not technically the product ourselves because we're something even more degrading. We're an input for the real product, and that is predictions about our future sold to the highest bidder so that this future can be altered. Very interesting Mm. article, actually. And uh, I remember talking to a a colleague of mine in the US a a few years ago who's in the marketing industry about this idea that you are the product. And uh, it wasn't so long ago that that was the new revelation. Uh, to people realizing that actually you're the product, yeah. 
uh, and now it's gone a step further where we, we're looking to predict people's behaviours in order to uh, make money out of that. And to actually shift, as this article is suggesting, I think that's interesting, is actually shifting the future by doing that, not, not Very, just kind of predicting yeah. the future that someone's going to go on, That's but right. actually changing that future, controlling yeah, that future. To, to, some, mm. to some extent. To yeah, some extent. Really, really interesting. And um, another way of, of looking at Layer 5, another characteristic that it has is that it loves to push the limits, and it will push the limits. It will push the limits as far as they can be pushed, and then sometimes beyond, and then pull back, and then do the same thing mm. over and over again. And we see this in cycles of, for example, the stock market, where prices are pushed higher and higher and higher and higher. And the, the idea is we want to push them as high as they can go, and we'll keep pushing them until they actually crash. Yes. And then we'll step back and do the whole thing over again. And, and that uh, repeats in cycles. And, and so that's a fundamental characteristic. And whenever you are operating that way, you are inevitably going to reach the limit at some point and go beyond it. So, so the system or the process is going to break. Um, and that's quite predictable. And then what happens over time as the, uh, the paradigm and particularly corporate structures have gained more and more success and hence more and more financial control over social systems, they have redesigned the systems to suit themselves. And I think uh, yeah. the, the political donation system is one good example that we mentioned earlier yeah. where the, the uh, corporate capture has happened. So the, you know, the corporations can say, look, uh, listen, Mr. Politician, we'll make you successful if you accept our money and then do this for us. Mm. And of course, you've also got to factor in the idea of uh, information being empowering and the retention and non-disclosure information being a key to success. Uh, often I talk about uh, layer five uh, using the analogy of a poker game where you've got to hold yeah. your hands close to your cards close to your chest, right? You can't show your cards to the other players because you, what your cards are, you know, are are actually your power. And if somebody else knows what your cards are, then it just kind of collapses the whole game. And so in this world, you're not going to tell the truth. You're not going to disclose what the actual motivator is. Uh, and so politicians are always left with holding this kind of um, bad-smelling parcel where, where they, they're very keen on their own success, so they've got to do what they're being told by their sponsors, yeah. and yet they're not allowed to actually say the truth. They've got to concoct some story uh, to cover the truth because revealing the truth actually collapses the whole game and it's no longer possible to succeed. Yeah. And hence we see examples of politicians coming out and saying the most ridiculous things publicly and making themselves look extremely stupid but all in service to their own success and the success of their financial sponsors. You'd have to wonder, though, whether that's really effective now, given the drivel that many of them actually um, come out with publicly. These yeah, days. well, you know, thanks to the internet and to the, the far reach of social media and the fact that anybody can publish anything and have it seen globally these days, uh, provided they've got access to the technology, then it's collapsing the game because people who would normally have been privy to this inside hidden agenda, mm. uh, are, their values are shifting and they're saying, well, actually, this isn't right. I don't agree with it now because my values have changed and therefore I'm going to tweet about this and the whole world knows about it. So it's actually gradually collapsing the game and that collapse is 
gathering speed. Mm. Well, there's been response, and I didn't know this till the other day, looking at this, there's been response in, in Europe uh, and some laws that came into effect in May last year called the uh, European General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR, and uh, it's claimed it's the most important um, change in data privacy regulation in 20 years. Uh, it uh, basically gives users the right to verify their data, including marketing profiles generated by data brokers, internet platforms, or online media. While companies can still protect their code and algorithms as business secrets, they can no longer hide personal data data that they generate about their users. Um, that's pretty amazing, and I, I wonder whether that's going to be successful and how they can get around it, or will they? And obviously, as usual, Europe is a bit ahead of the game in terms of these kind of uh, privacy matters. Yeah, and what we really need to do is... Uh, develop completely new systems which mm. are more sophisticated and have this kind of guarantee of privacy built in so we don't actually have to trust a third party to to um, uphold our privacy mm. and yeah. uh, our data uh, privacy and that kind of thing um, but what we're seeing now you know as with the previous example that you quoted uh, is is really continued efforts to try and patch the increasing number of holes on this sinking ship. And this is a, a wonderful uh, move by the European Union to introduce this policy. Yeah. However, they are still trying to patch the holes on a sinking ship and the ship is going to sink. There's no doubt about that. It's it's inevitable, uh, you know, as inevitable as the process of evolution itself. Mm. There's an article in, um, I'm quoting that piece I just read there, it's from Quartz magazine, that's QZ dot com entitled your digital identity has three layers and you can only protect one of them very straight very simply put the first layer is the one that you do control that is what you post the photos the, the comments the likes and everything on your whatever platforms you may post on the second layer is made of behavioral observations that the algorithms then interpret of what you've posted there and then the third layer is composed of interpretations of the first and second layers and by that time of course it's way out of your hand and you have no idea what that profile looks like that sort of digital identity and may have no relationship what you actually to you at all, or it also may, may be invading your privacy, but also might not actually indicate what you're interested in, what you do and who you are at yeah, all. So yeah, it's a bit yeah. of a, That's a right. fake. Yeah. And uh, the article from uh, Shoshana Zuboff calls this gothic algorithmic daemons at play. I like that. Uh, that follow us at nearly every instant of every hour of every day to suck us dry of metadata. And it's a pretty strong statement, but this yeah. is actually what's happening. It is what's happening. And, and let's maybe give a really simple mm. example of how that might play out. You know, you might be talking on social media to your friends about the fact that the heels come loose on your shoe, you know, and you had trouble yeah. walking to work today because of the, the, that issue with your shoe. And so the algorithm would scan that language and pick it up and it might conclude that actually you need a new pair of shoes. And therefore, the um, you know the end analysis is that uh, you actually need to find some new shoes that are affordable according to your you know uh, social status and that kind of thing. And so it might start to present you with opportunities to provide to to buy those shoes online or in a store that's near you. Um, and it, knows, it probably knows which day you get paid and all that kind of stuff. And so hence we see these ads popping up after, hang, hang on a minute, I was just talking about that to you yesterday and now I'm seeing ads in my feed on social media offering me this, you know. And that's how it happens. I'm glad I never actually look at social uh, at advertisements. I just don't. I mean, there's occasionally I get captured by something, yeah. but very, very rarely. So I don't even know. I haven't even had a good look at what they're trying to sell me because I don't even take note of it. So. I know. And what... What's happening is that this push advertising is becoming more and mm. more intrusive 
Uh, and, you know, gosh, it's almost every time I, I look at my phone or computer now, I've got some ad popping up in my face that I really don't want to see. Yeah. Uh, just, just the same as you're not interested in. Of course, uh, what you're going to say, go. Yeah, I was, I was just going to say, though, um, you know, again, this is uh, it's a trend that's taking us towards collapse of the yeah. process. So what's happening with the shifting values to layer six is that people are valuing privacy of their own data they're valuing transparency of processes uh, and they really don't want intrusive information in their life that actually they don't want to see you know the last thing they want to see is somebody trying to push uh, a sale on them that they don't want to make or for a, an item that maybe they don't even want uh, and so this trend is gonna collapse the whole push advertising process eventually yeah. and and i i predict that we'll move to a completely uh, opposite process which will be pull advertising where you'll know where to go if you want information about new shoes and when you want new shoes you'll go there but otherwise it's not in your face and mm. really that's what people will want in the future well some of these articles regarding surveillance capitalism talk about the fact that why don't they just ask us it sounds quite simplistic and then i sort of read and thought well maybe like why don't the social media people say so who are you what are you interested in what do you do what sort of advertising do you want to see if any and actually go with that, but it's a highly unlikely scenario to occur in uh, in uh, in stage five well, capitalism. Actually, it's a very cunning strategy by layer five, right? Why don't you just give us all the data that we want instead of having to make us work hard suspicious. to get it off you, right? Mm. It'll be so much easier for you and us, of course, yeah. well, I'm sure. <laughs> then, of course, you've got what's happening in China as as a, another angle to this and their uh, social credit system which we've, uh, we haven't talked about that much before, but this is pretty amazing uh, that they put in place. It's uh, where every citizen, 1.4 billion of them, is ranked on professional and personal interactions, online activity and public appearances. If you fail to pay a parking ticket or you look up a banned topic online, your actions in real life have lasting effects, such as your ability to buy train tickets or send your kids to a good school. And this, this is an article the other day in uh, on ABC News talks about uh, China's Hebel province, where a red circle sweeps out a radius on a map like a naval radar scanning for enemy ships. And uh, this tool can pick up, uh, it's called the Deadbeat map. And this mini program is accessible within Chinese social media platform WeChat, and it allows users to pinpoint the location of those who have failed to pay their debts within a 500 meter radius, etc. I mean, this is all. This is a, a quintessentially sort of Chinese way of, uh, of uh, in a sense, manipulating the same kind of information in a different way, in a, in a sort of non-democratic way. Not that you call Facebook exactly democratic anymore, but yeah, uh, so much to talk about. Yes, a, I know this is a angle particular thing. issue. In a very general mm. sense, this is a vast generalisation, mm. but the the West. Uh, in in recent times has tended to be more individually oriented where the east uh, eastern part of the world has tended to be more communally oriented and so what we're seeing is the emergence of these kinds of surveillance systems which actually um, have been existing in western countries for some time i mean you know with snowden of course broke the the news on the vast surveillance yes. systems that the u.s government mm. has had uh, operating throughout the world and of course they're not the only ones who are doing it there are plenty of other governments doing similar things and now of course uh, china uh, and having that 
primary sort of communal influence is, is starting to move into layer five, which is individualistic, and it's looking at these systems and saying, okay, how can we roll these systems out? And of course, it's not worried about uh, people knowing about them. And in fact, it sees that as perhaps an advantage that people know that there is a surveillance system. If they don't do what they're told or pay the bills and follow the rules, then they're going to suffer. Um, I, I think it's, mm. uh, it's a, a massive disaster in the making, personally, because they're relying partially on artificial intelligence to analyze some of these behaviors and match data and those sorts of things. And yeah. we've, we've got that human disconnection. We know from the experience of uh, layer five playing out as a dominant global system that these disconnected layer five oriented systems eventually lead to the collapse of the systems. And uh, you know, processes have to play their their, uh, themselves out naturally and we'll see where this goes but I, I think those kinds of social rating systems uh, where you've got artificial intelligence involved in analysing someone's social credit and changing mm. their social credit um, based on data which may not even be uh, analysed by a human uh, all sorts of errors and mistakes and false assumptions are going to be made there which are going to have very real human impacts um, and quite possibly create a, a massive social underclass who you know can't get access to the things that they need to live life adequately. So um, yeah, that, that remains to be seen. Yeah. Last little piece of comment from you on from uh, this piece by Sam Biddle on Shoshana Zuboff's book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, is a question that he asks Sam Biddle of her. And he says, uh, and I'm interested because I, I don't know much about this and I think you know a bit more. Uh, I've been surprised, he says, by the number of people I know who I consider very savvy as far as technology, interested and concerned about technology, concerned by Facebook, who still have purchased an Alexa or Google Assistant device for their living room. It's this weird mismatch of knowing better and surrendering to the convenience of it all. What would you say to someone like that? And she answers, um, surveillance capitalism in general has been so successful because most of us feel so beleaguered so unsupported by our real-world institutions, whether it's healthcare, the education system, the bank. It's just a tale of woe wherever you go. The economic and political institutions right now leave us feeling so frustrated. We've all been driven in this way toward the internet, towards these services, because we need help, and no one else is helping us. That's how we get hooked. Layer after layer within the layer. Absolutely. And... You know, let's not downplay the sophistication of layer five thinking. I mean, the, the idea of strategy itself really came out of the modern era, right? right. I, I'm not too sure that world word was around before the modern era. And uh, it's extremely cunning, extremely sophisticated. I mean, it got us to the moon and back after all. Mm. Um, and it has learnt how to not only exploit the systems, but how to influence the design of our social systems for its own purposes and this can only end badly and uh you know this this is not a an unusual thing the every era when it comes to its close has to collapse to some extent at least in order for the social structures and the thinking the mindsets mm. the neural networks even mm. to rewire themselves to change and become more capable and more complex and more sophisticated. And that's exactly what we're facing now globally. Uh, and it's it's hard to put a time frame on this, but at the, the milestones that I'm seeing uh, into the future are leading me to believe that we may see this change of dominant global paradigm between layer five, the scientific industrial way, 
to layer six, the humanistic network centric way around about the early 2030s. Yeah, that's absolutely. And so that means that we're looking at now over a decade of the continued collapse of these systems, uh, of the introduction of uh, new ways to, to try and uh, get uh, success you know, in, from these corporations that are going to impact our lives in, in, in huge ways and many undesirable ways. Uh, so we've got quite a number of challenges ahead. The only kind of saving grace is that simultaneously to that difficulty and the collapse that it will cause, we're seeing the rise of a new world. So we're already seeing the rise of layer six technology, layer six thinking, layer six ways of actually surpassing layer five mm -hmm. systems, um, bypassing layer five systems. Uh, and, and that new technology, that those new ways are only gonna get better over the next 10 years as well. So it's, a, it's an interesting kind of um, dichotomy yeah. that we're facing yeah. in the near future. And uh, it, it w there needs to be a, a level of collapse and how severe that collapse is during this transition between paradigms. I mean, you look back at the transition between layer four and uh, layer five, you look at the kind of widespread violence, um, the, uh, you know, the, the Spanish Inquisition in the church, all, all of these really, really chaotic and crazy and violent things that happened. Uh, we're going through a similar dynamic now mm. between five and six, and how bad it gets is really a factor of how human how effectively human consciousness can grasp the nature of the dynamic and take steps to soften the impact of the transition yeah, okay yeah. And, and this is what's really interesting about this discussion that we have on future sense is that by attempting to bring a second tier perspective on the underlying dynamics between these things instead of being carried along in a turbulent river current like humanity has been up until now and a reactionary current you could say all of a sudden we have this empty witnessing capacity that yeah. comes from the second tier perspective to step out of the river and look back in the river in fact even look into the future and say okay we know that when a river goes past an area like this that has big rocks then certain currents are created you get this chaos and turbulence and then it all sorts itself out further downstream and we can actually look ahead in the river now and we can see we're actually right there we're just about to go through the, the rapids and, yeah unless the, uh, the the cotton growers uh, take too much water out of the river <laughs> yeah exactly exactly so so from a tech and a second tier perspective we can predict the turbulence that's going to come because we can see the rocks ahead in the river mm. okay this is the way it's always been during the transition of a paradigm or era uh, in human history yeah. uh, and so armed with that knowledge and knowing what the dynamics what the chaos uh, is going to look like or what the causative factors are then we have perhaps for the first time certainly for the first time in history on this scale the capacity to influence the nature and the the human experience of a paradigm shift you know uh, more than ever before which is a very, very exciting thing, and it just really reinforces the importance of this conversation. Indeed. And I, I thought I'd give you just very quickly a couple of websites. We'll post these links on our at Future, Future Sense show Twitter account over the next couple of days. Uh, if you are interested in at least trying to contain or stop some of the online tracking that is definitely occurring, occurring you can go to a few websites. There's one called myshadow.org. Uh, and these will be posted, as I said, another one called howtogeek.org. That's particularly an article I've got in front of me about uh, avoiding uh, geotagging photos of your location, for example, a sm relatively small thing, but you may, be, you may not uh, want that to be happening. Another one's called betterinternet.org. 
SG and about uh, various encrypted messaging apps that you can start using today. So there's certainly ways around some of this if it's a, a particular concern to you. And I thought we'd finish this little bit because we're in quarter to, quarter to 11 now, so pregnancy, birth and beyond coming up soon, uh, end with a, a brief uh, um, positive message, and that is uh, about surveillance in terms of police surveillance, which is a big issue. In fact, you noticed, uh, just as an aside here, Steve, that there's a surveillance camera outside the bus stop over here in Byron Bay all of a sudden, or how yeah. long has it been there? We wonder. I, I've been reading about the fact that the local council here has uh, introduced surveillance cameras in mm. our town of Byron Bay, and that you know that's been driven by quite legitimate reasons because we we do have an unusually high incidence of alcohol fuel violence in the town here because we get so many visitors coming to town. You know, it's certainly not a, a local aspect of Byron Bay life, but uh, we get bunches of visitors who come from all over the place. Uh, who like to drink alcohol and play up when they're here because it's a holiday. Mm. Uh, and so that's driven the introduction of surveillance cameras in the main street, but it just looked really weird seeing yeah, like a pole sticking up there with a whole bunch of cameras pointing up. Well, the in the city of Cambridge, Massachusetts, in, the, in America, it's become at least the 10th local jurisdiction in the US to adopt a crucial measure enabling civilian control of police surveillance technology at the local level. The measure requires local police to obtain civilian permission before purchasing surveillance equipment to document the security rationale and privacy impacts of any such purchase and also to comply with an annual audit to reveal potential misuse or overuse of the technology. So that's rather interesting. It's in the 10th jurisdiction to do so. It is interesting. And, uh, you know, it's introducing a human factor in the process uh, rather than just following systems because that's what the systems, you know, tell us we can do. Uh, we're bringing in a, a human values element where somebody outside the police system, somebody outside the police system uh, can apply a different set of values and a different perspective to this decision to um, undertake surveillance. I think that's a very healthy thing and we, we probably can expect to see more of that. Indeed. Sorry about just playing something there. We've, we've had a bit of a change of the channels here on the desk in front of me. So A change of life conditions. A change of folks. life conditions has occurred we on are, the desk. And we're trying a small to adapt mistake there. as fast as we can. We are. You're tuned to Future Sense with Nick Jeans and Steve McDonald. Engage. Emerge. Activate. And spiral up. Yes, you're tuned to the last few minutes of Future Sense here with myself, Nick Jeans, and Steve McDonald coming up, Pregnancy, Birth, and Beyond shortly. Um, both Steve and I are going down uh, in the next day or two to Melbourne for a couple of days for the launch of Mind Medicine Australia. I think we mentioned it last week, a new paradigm for mental health with Professor David Nutt. David Nutt is head of neuropsychopharmacology at Imperial College London. And under the auspices of Professor Nutt, the psychedelic research group at Imperial College is one of the world's most uh, foremost psychedelic research laboratories publishing landmark research on psychedelic therapies and neural imaging studies of the psychedelic state. We just thought we'd mention a bit of that because of the discussion continually about pill testing. It's, you know, it's not the same thing, of course, and yet we have this illegality on one hand of people taking uh, substances at, uh, at, um, at festivals and concerts and, and the like, and on the other hand, this growing movement, uh, highly researched and, and, and becoming more and more authentic into the use of psychopharmacology for uh, mental health conditions in particular. That's right, and, and such big values gaps between mm. some of our political leaders and you know, mainstream opinion. Um, I, uh, I saw an interesting example of uh, 
Mm, what could be uh, a undue influence over a politician, it's it's impossible to say really without the evidence, but the Premier of Victoria was uh, standing up in Parliament just recently, I saw the video clip, mm. and uh, he was ruling out absolutely the possibility of introducing pill testing as a harm reduction mechanism in Victoria, particularly music festivals. Mm. And uh, he was asked by another member of Parliament, you know, uh, where are you getting your evidence from in support of that decision? And uh, his answer was that, um, in fact, I think the question was, you know, did you seek professional medical or health advice in making that decision? And and of course, apparently he didn't, according to his answer. Uh, His answer was that he was going on the word of uh, Victoria Police. It was was their advice. And and then he just uh, threw out that uh, these illicit substances are completely unsafe at any level of consumption. That's a fact, and of course, it's actually not a fact at all. Um, but uh, you know, in his position as the premier, and in that particular context of parliament, uh, no one contradicted him immediately after that because uh, I guess you know it wasn't appropriate for the way that parliament runs. But uh, he, here we have a, a very responsible. Uh, member of society who has a lot of authority and influence over the state of Victoria who can roll out what is basically an untruth and call it a fact uh, and, mm-hmm. and you know probably a lot of people who are listening who don't have access to the to the facts or the evidence just take it on his word that this guy you know he wouldn't lie to us but uh, here he's clearly being influenced in some uh, unusual way to um, to as I said before look stupid as if he hasn't done his homework um, because he's unable to reveal whatever the hidden agenda is behind this pushback on pill testing and the, the hidden agenda is most likely a fear of social change uh, and that, that fear could be coming from the Victorian Police Department because yeah. they're fearful about losing the funding that's associated with the drug war because there's a terrible, a terribly large amount of funding that uh, is associated with the kind of drug war-related work that they do. Mm-hmm. Much more money is spent on police enforcement of drug laws than is spent on harm reduction within society, which is a terrible shame. Yeah. Um, but this is a, another great example of this late-stage late capitalism and how it's playing out. Mm. There's a great article that you pointed to from the conversation from a couple of days ago, and it's entitled, In Debates About Drug Use, Fun is Important. And uh, it clearly points to a number of uh, studies and so forth which indicate that young people take drugs uh, for fun, essentially, and uh, and essentially for connection. And I think this is really important in terms of when we talk about stage five to stage six, to layer six, the green layer, which is much more about connection. And it occurs to me that this is what people are looking for in a disconnected, relatively disconnected society. Uh, these kind of substances at these kind of events enhance that enjoyment and socialization that occurs there. And uh, that that's never factored in. And, and there's boldly one of the Greens uh, from uh, New South Wales, Kate uh, Fairman, summed it up when she explained why she'd used MDMA in her 20s and since. She was bold and courageous of it to do so. And she said, we knew there were risks, but however, you know, the Just Say No message was around then too. We ignored it. Something's never changed because we were just having a good time. That was our priority. Yeah, that's right. It's it's very hard for people who haven't experienced these drugs to really understand it. But uh, most of them, those people I'm talking about, probably drink alcohol. And of course, they enjoy having a drink with their friends. You know, it's it's fun and that's why they do it. And of course, this is why people take 
these drugs like MDMA, mm. not only because they're fun, but because they're actually actually more sophisticated and less harmful drugs than things like alcohol. So you, you don't wake up with a terrible hangover from MDMA. Of course, it can be abused if you take too much. Yeah. I mean, that's the case with anything. And it's about purity too. So we're not advocating uh, taking a pill out of someone just coming up to you at a festival at all. Not at all. Don't try this at home. No. Not not an recommendation anyway. But there was an interesting study released uh, on Tuesday that I found in an article on inverse.com from the Journal of, Journal of Psychopharmacology, which suggests that there's uh, no real reason to be concerned about the use of pure MDMA. And in this study, they say long-term MDMA users uh, were shown to have higher levels of empathy than long-term yes. users of other drugs. So there's a, a developmental benefit mm. from the use of this particular drug in its purest form, of course, uh, yeah. compared to, say, alcohol, uh, which kills 15 Australians every day, far more than any illicit drug does. And an article on the other side of the equation from businessinsider.com.au is entitled, The Top Psychedelic Scientist Says the Climate is good is Looking Good for Magic Mushrooms and MDMA to Turn into Medicines. And this was spoken at, actually, the ga- a gathering of the world's billionaires at uh, Davos just recently, and uh, saying that at the World Economic Forum's annual meeting there in Davos in Switzerland, a leading neuroscientist said drugs like magic mushrooms and MDMA are moving closer to regulatory approval. If given the green light, the drugs will be used to treat a variety of mental health con- indications, including depression and PTSD. So it's appearing even in yeah. the, these sort of conferences now. This yeah, great. I think that was Robin Carhart-Harris, wasn't it? Um, is he quoted in that article? Mm, um, he's a colleague of David Nutt's anyway, who's been doing yes, some it is, amazing Robin work. Yes, Carhart Harris. Yeah, he's been doing some amazing work with magnetic resonance imaging. Yeah. Yes, that's right. He's also at, the, at London's Imperial College, quite right. Yeah. That's it. We'll have to leave it there. It's uh, two minutes to. We'll play a little bit of a track as we go out. Kiss the earth. And uh, thanks for joining us here. It's been so much fun. Thank you. Yeah. We'll be back next week here on Bay FM on Future Sense. You've been listening to Future Sense, a podcast edited from the radio show of the same name broadcast on Bay FM in Byron Bay, Australia at bayfm.org. Future Sense is available on iTunes and SoundCloud. The future is here now. It's just not evenly distributed.